Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we are discussing Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, a quasi-Thanksgiving special, although this movie has almost nothing to do with Thanksgiving. Right. It kind of takes place between the two holidays that are probably the most vastly different, Halloween and Christmas, but it is not a Thanksgiving movie. We do see the Thanksgiving town door, but we never really ever go past that in terms of exploring Thanksgiving in this movie. That's right, listeners. We thought, hey, what would be the perfect movie to review that is well-loved and well-known, well-acclaimed between Halloween and Christmas? Kind of a nice segue, and we thought, ah, perfect, The Nightmare Before Christmas, which Alan and I both love. Right, and I know that we had actually talked about doing this a couple of times, actually, and we just never really got it worked into the schedule uh, with everything else that we were doing. I think at one point we had thought about doing it as a Christmas special, and then I, I think it was a couple of years ago, but then didn't do that because we did something else. Uh, and now here we are, finally, we're doing it. And uh, yeah, I'm very, very excited to talk about this because, yeah, I think it's no secret to either of us that we both really, really do enjoy this movie. Oh, yes. I have a bit of a story that goes along with this one. I'll save it for just a minute. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan from Chicago. Yes. Nightmare Before Christmas, it did come out before we were born. Right. Uh, 1993, October 29th. The perfect time to release such a movie. Oh, how glorious it would have been to be alive and old enough to see this movie in 93. Yes. Yes, it would have been great. But just, just a few years. It's, it's not too much older than either of us. Oh, no. No. Not only by, let me, th- let me think here, three or four years or so. How many times have you seen this? Do you know? Oh, geez. Okay. Um, well, I know I watched it twice. For this recording, I watched it once because, we, of course, I have to watch it once for the first record. And then I watched it the next day because I'm just like, I talked to my brother. I was like, hey, you want to watch this? Because I just kind of want to watch it again. For no, mm-hmm. I really didn't have to in reality. So yeah. at least twice for this. And I know I've seen it mm, probably three or four times leading up to this just in the past. I know I watched it once way back in the day when I was a kid. And then I watched it again uh, with somebody else. And I think that's what sparked it. And then I watched it. Maybe so. I'm guessing six times total in my entire lifetime. Maybe seven. I've seen it quite a bit. I don't even know how many times I've seen this movie. I know that I have seen it since it came out on. Well, since at least I bought it on VHS. Right. I that's so that's been quite a bit of times. I've owned two copies of the movie. I owned the VHS, which I watched on repeat. And then uh, this was actually the first Blu-ray I ever owned. Oh, yeah. I remember you were, we were talking about this a while back. And I remember I had bought it on Blu-ray. It wasn't my first. But I remember I had bought it on Blu-ray. And you mentioned to me that, yeah, that was the first movie that, I, that you had ever bought on a Blu-ray. Yeah. And I didn't even own a Blu-ray player at the time. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I was so excited to see this movie on Blu-ray. It looked amazing. I loved this movie. I wanted to see it in crystal clear a definition i did own a 720p hd television but no blu-ray player so i thought hey you know what 
maybe somehow it'll work in a DVD player. <laughs> it didn't. Well, yeah, I'm going to say, did, did it work? Yeah. Uh, that would be, I'm, I feel like that would be just be crushing to know that it just didn't work. Oh, yeah. It it was sad, <laughs> but it gave me something to look forward to when I did get a Blu-ray player. And uh, I still think this is one of the best uh, Blu-ray setups that I've seen. Uh, the menu, the design of the menu is gorgeous. Uh, how it tracks the movie while you watch it and how it'll put it in the top corner and put the little grade over it and uh, just a plethora of special features. So uh, very, very impressed with this Blu-ray, even still, despite it being one of the first Blu-rays to come out. It's it's an old Blu-ray. Yeah, and to be fair, it, it is a Disney release, so they usually have very top-notch uh, design when it comes to something like this in terms of the Blu-ray. Uh, that's just how Disney is uh, with this kind of stuff. So it makes sense. But yeah, you are right. It is uh, rather impressive how good this movie looks, despite being a relatively old Blu-ray. And before we get into much of the details of the background of the movie, I'll give you a little bit of my history with A Nightmare Before Christmas. So I've always loved Claymation. Even before I saw this movie, I wanted to consume as much Claymation as I could get my hands on. And every claymation I saw was geared towards kids and not um, not like kind of quasi-scary, I guess you could say. It was just all fairly lighthearted, except there was this one um, Halloween special that the VHS broke before I could even watch it as soon as we bought it, and I never got to watch it. But it's on blue right now, so I will rectify that situation. Anyways, it's not it's not as scary as this. It's like a Rankin and Bass thing. Anyways, so uh, for another Disney VHS that I had, I watched the Disney VHSs all the time when I was little. This was a preview before that, and I thought, oh man, that looks amazing. Oh wow, I want to see that so bad. But being, I don't know, four, five, six. <laughs> Uh, between those ages, my parents weren't going to let me watch this movie because they're not going to let their four-year-old watch it. And then even when I was six, they still weren't going to let me watch it. Also, I remember we had uh, moved to Texas and we were at a, a friend's house and they had it on VHS. And I remember all the adults were there and I wanted to, I'm like, I don't want to hang out with these adults. I want to go upstairs and watch it. So... Being a good boy, though, despite me being ornery at times, I I still asked, can I watch it? And they were like, oh, no, absolutely not. And then the, the lady, the, the wife of the house, I don't remember who it was, she was like, oh, no, it's too scary for you. And I was like, why would you say that? No, you're ruining it. <laughs> so uh, uh, I didn't get to watch it. Then I was foiled again. And I can't remember the first time I watched it, but eventually we did buy the VHS. And like I had already said, I watched this on repeat. I consumed it all the time. Um, now, probably I'm being a, probably a bit exaggerative. I didn't just watch it that much. Many as like Cinderella or Dumbo or Sleeping Beauty or Jungle Book, things like that. I 101 Dalmatians. I loved those. I watched those a bit more, but when I did, I, I I watched it a lot, and I've watched it quite a bit over the years, and this October was definitely a special one, 
because my girlfriend and I, for the first time, saw its annual theatrical uh, week-long run. We did go see it uh, the last- I'm so jealous. We saw it the last week in October. It was amazing and a special experience. The screen was huge. The sound was amazing in the theater. Uh, it was really special because I've been loving this movie since I was just a wee lad of when it came on my radar screen at like four years old. And so it was really special to see that in theaters. And hopefully you'll get to see it next year in theaters too. I really hope so because it never came to where I was at. Where I was at and I was really jealous when I saw that it went home. Uh, but I do, I have a slightly interesting story with this because I do remember seeing it around maybe when I was, I think, 12. Uh, one of our friends kind of just let us borrow this DVD because she really is a fanatic for this movie. And I know, I know that people exist that are, because, okay, this is kind of a cult movie. And there are definitely people out there who are in love with this movie so much. Uh, Jack Skellington, his, uh, his face is just kind of well known and, and stuff. And so, she let us borrow this movie because she had heard that we had never seen it before, that being me and my brother. And then him and I watched it, and I actually remember not liking it very much. Mm. I think part of the reason, not that it was scary or anything, but it, part of the reason was it was more, I guess, just the tone. It just felt really strange, just a bit too weird for my taste at the time. Um, things have changed since then, of course. And it, it, I watched it that one, that one time, and then it probably... Hmm, a good five, six years since I ever really touched it. And then I think my girlfriend at the time, we watched it together. And then I said, whoa, wait a minute. And I began to notice you know, how much, how special this movie really is. And then since then, I've actually just, I've loved it uh, whenever we watched it at that point, And I've loved it ever since. And then of course I bought it on Blu-ray. It was one of the, it was one of the first Blu-rays that, Blu-rays that I purchased uh, right after Birdemic being the first. Um, since then, I've loved it beyond since then and beyond so uh, that's kind of my story it isn't necessarily anything special except that i just didn't like it at first then i've come to change my ways since then yeah it's definitely a different tone definitely yeah. a darker tone than i don't know any kids movie that i can think of honestly right and and to be fair that was my very first outing with burton i had never really seen anything from tim burton up until that point in my life partly because i didn't really watch as many movies at that point yeah but I think that was also part of the issue. Sure. I I don't know. I think I might have seen Batman, Tim Burton's Batman, at uh, probably at least around the same time I saw Nightmare Before Christmas. And I can't remember which one I saw first. Maybe Batman, because I love Batman. Um, and I did actually get the um, the Michael Keaton Batman figures for Christmas when I was six and those came out way before you know when I was six because I was six in like 2001 or something and Batman came out in like 89 or something right so I still have those but uh speaking of that kind of paraphernalia I've got I've got uh two Jack Skellington figures and Sally figure I've got a Jack Skellington pin I owned a Jack Skellington jacket and a Jack Skellington shirt so, yeah, I you can tell I like I like this movie a little bit. Yeah, I I know for a fact that I've at least seen the figurines. I may have seen the pin. Yeah, uh, may have also seen the jacket, but I don't think I can't remember if I have or not. But yes, uh, it's clear that even Nightmare Before Christmas, even being a cult film, 
has a huge following because I know that people have shirts and all kinds of things with Jack Skellington's face all over it. Uh, I've just seen it probably become probably because of the girl that had allowed us to watch this movie of her own copy of it at the time yeah. because she was huge on it. But I've also seen it kind of just out in the wild. I think there was one time I was at some, uh, I think it was like some amusement park and they had some guy making shirts and Jack Skellington was one of the choices. Oh, nice. Well, Alan, you want to tell them a little bit of background about The Nightmare Before Christmas? Yeah, let's do that. So the inception of Nightmare Before Christmas came back around 1982, um, around this time. Okay, actually, a real quick question. Have you seen the short film Vincent by uh, Tim Burton? Yes, I've seen it, I know, at least twice. Okay, uh, that makes two of us then. So that was, with that success of his short film, that was kind of what, got him to ask Disney if he could make this. He kind of had this idea in his head, wanted to see what the dichotomy between uh, these two holidays that are so vastly different and make a movie about that same thing. And originally it was going to be just like a 30-minute TV special or at one point even just be a children's book. But he approached Disney about this. Oh, yeah, and Henry Selleck, the guy who actually directed this movie, he was also a part of this. He went up to Disney and said, uh, hey, I want to make this. And they said, eh, I don't know about that. They felt it was a bit too weird and dark for their tone. And they didn't exactly give him uh, the money to do anything with it. They kept the rights, though. And at the time, Tim Burton actually did work in the animation department for Disney. And then I think he was fired in 1984. And he went on and did his own thing. This when he did Beetlejuice and Batman. And then around 1990, he, said, he found out that they still owned the rights. And that... His success with Beetlejuice and Batman kind of helped him uh, kind of get into the door with Disney and say, hey, can I make this movie? And they eventually said yes. Uh, now, of course, the copyright ended up going to Touchstone, which is still owned by Disney. Went to Touchstone because that's a more adult uh, distribution company at the time. But before we get to that part, uh, Henry Selleck, they kind of made a deal. And Henry Selleck, they would, he would direct it. Uh, Henry Selleck would. And uh, Tim Bird would more or less be a part of the creation process uh, everything and he did have a huge hand in making this movie but he did not necessarily write the screenplay it didn't necessarily direct that was all Henry Selleck and that was all somebody else who did the screenplay uh, I believe his name is uh, Michael McDowell is his name who did the screenplay um, that being said even though Tim Burton didn't necessarily have his hands physically on this project his influence is absolutely everywhere and I'm pretty sure that's very clear with this movie if you've ever seen anything from Tim Burton uh, anyways, it was kind of explained that Tim Burton had laid the egg. Uh, this is from Selleck. He laid the Tim Burton laid the egg, and then Selleck just kind of let it crack and let it let it and hatched it more or less. Um, he worked very hard with a lot of the people, a lot of other people who would work with Burton to make sure that his vision comes alive. And Henry Selleck did, and they even got went as far as to get Denny Elfman onto the project. I think this was a this would have been uh, they had already worked together. Tim Burton and Elfman had already worked together on Batman before this. And I believe Beetlejuice is also done by Danny Elfman. But Elfman kind of said that, hey, this project was really easy for me because I related so much to Jack Skellington. And just a really quick fun fact, uh, he does do the singing voice for Jack Skellington. It's not the guy who does the acting voice. There are two different voices, although they sound very, very similar. Um, anyways, so what the, one, of the, one of the problems with uh, Tim Burton is that not only he didn't really exactly want to go through the pre-production process and the slow painstaking time it would take to develop 
a stop motion movie. And so he was also also in the middle of Ed Wood. It was being in pre-production. It was finishing up Batman Returns, or I think actually no, he was getting ready to start Batman Returns. So he's kind of in between two movies and he also had Nightmare Before Christmas on his mind. So he wasn't exactly in the office very much when they were doing this. He was in there, I think, recorded about five to ten times over the two years that they were filming it. Um, he more or less just kind of over, oversaw a lot of the process. But he himself wasn't necessarily involved once it got past a certain point because he was so busy with other projects. Um, anyways, so when it was all said and done, they had about... Jack Skellington, I think, had about 400 heads that they used. And in terms of stop motion, uh, these, the, at least at this point, and, and especially with Jack Skellington's character, instead of moving the mouth back and forth, they just replaced the head with a different expression. Um, to get him to talk or even to react and things like that. It's just much faster. And Sally had her faces replaced. If you, uh, I think she, I didn't say how many uh, faces she had, but her face was replaced to keep her hair intact. Um, so filming began in 1991 with 120, 120 people. Had 20 stages they were using, and at one and at peak at the peak production point, they actually had I think all stages being used. Uh, and in total, there are 109,440 frames taken for this movie. And back when it was about to be released, that's when Disney gave it over to Touchstone because they felt that it was be a bit too, still be a bit too dark and that Touchstone is their more adult-oriented uh, distribution label. Um, and even Tim Burton was a bit skeptical about this. He's like, it turned out to be more of a brand name thing. The, Disney was trying to keep their brand a bit more pure. They didn't necessarily understand, didn't really know what this would do, I guess, to their image. They gave it off to Touchstone. Um, but in 2006, Disney took it away from Touchstone, put it under the Disney label, and gave it, a, I think, a re-release and then a 3D transfer in 2007. That also kind of helped spark the 3D trend that we have. I, it's not necessarily a thing today. But in the last few years, we've had a lot of movies come out in 3D. It's been kind of a gimmick in cinema. And since then, it's Ruby kind of, kind of a cult classic on home media. It, it did it really well in the box office. I think it got, yeah, $75 million, uh, in the box office from an $18 million budget. Uh, it holds an 8.0 IMDb and a B plus in cinema score. It even got an Oscar nomination for best visual effects, but was beat out by Jurassic Park. So it's clear that this movie had a very good, uh, a very good financial gain, and a lot of audiences really did enjoy it for the most part when it came out, and even more so when it came out on home media and became more of a cult classic and became even more profitable in home media than it did even in a theater, even though it made a really good budget. Yeah, I think the reason this movie got a B plus, because I was a little surprised when I saw it had a B plus, was yes, audiences did like it because it was a box office hit, but I think audiences thought this, kind of your initial reaction, this is really weird. This is right. just honestly different than anything uh, theatrical audiences had been really used to, especially something... Uh, kind of directed towards children, but also still loved by adults, I would say. So I think that's why I got the B+. But uh, also, did you hear uh, Tim Burton's original poem? It's on the Blu-ray uh, special features. I think I heard it at one point, but I never... Yeah, I know, I know I've heard it at least once, but... Yeah, that's about as far as I as far as I know. Yeah, it's really cool because in in 1982, you know, he did have Vincent, and he also right. saw a department store window being switched over from Halloween to Christmas, and that gave him a bit of an idea. And he wrote this poem, and it kind of gives you a little bit more insight to where the title "The Nightmare Before Christmas" comes, because towards the end of the poem, he writes, "Twas the nightmare before Christmas." And all through the house and uh, 
kind of gives a twisted uh, devilish spin on that. But I do recommend listeners if maybe it's on YouTube. I don't know. It's really cool because it's narrated by Christopher Lee. Oh, and it does have Burton's uh, Burton gives an introduction. He says it's based off of his original drawings that he kind of drew up for his thoughts on what the nightmare before Christmas would be. So they do, they kind of animate it in a, a bit of that way. And it's, it's very similar to the movie actually. So it's kind of cool to see his poem really translated to the movie very well. The only things that are really different are uh, when Jack goes to Christmas town, he starts taking things like the Grinch did, but he doesn't do it with malicious intent. He basically just wants to take them and bring them back to Christmas town. But it's, it's really obvious Burton was kind of channeling uh, Dr. Seuss's the Grinch. And I would say this poem is very similar. It's kind of like a dark Dr. Seuss. I would say. Yeah. And there are like a lot of different influences on really not just Dr. Seuss, but a lot of just, Christmas stories in general. Uh, you got Doctor Seuss, of course, with his with his Grinch who stole Christmas. But you've also got even Rudolph Red Nosed Reindeer, especially at one point in the movie with Zero. But yeah, there's a lot of influence on other stories here, mainly just Christmas stories, but then also kind of giving a more Halloween darker twist to them, which is very interesting. Uh, in with this movie, of course, it's only something that Tim Burton would have been able to do and pull it off this way. Oh, absolutely. And the only other difference is. This movie is focused on Jack as the main character, so there's no Sally storyline in the poem. And also, don't worry, this isn't a spoiler, but the graveyard scene at the very end, before Jack returns to Halloween Town, uh, Santa comes to him in the graveyard and basically just kind of says, you know, yeah, you learned your lesson about how we really shouldn't do this and you need to be yourself and not try to be me. And it's like Jack wants Santa to be him in Halloween Town, like to take his place. So th- those are the only differences. But I do highly recommend you check out, listeners, you check out the poem. Uh, it's it's really well done by Christopher Lee, and it's it's cool to see Burton's original poem that way. Interesting. Oh, something else interesting I thought uh, would be good to note is, have you seen James and the Giant Peach? I have seen clips, but I have not seen the movie itself okay it's another stop motion movie it's partially live action as well in the beginning and end it's directed by henry Selleck, who directed this so he kept the jack uh figure and captain jack is in that movie which i completely forgot i saw james and the giant peach only once that was another one of those movies where i was like oh i want to see that not as bad as this one of course but my parents were like yeah i don't know that looks a pretty pretty creepy too so I, I saw that right. one only recently, like within the past few years for the first time. But you do see the Captain Jack figure in that. And of course, as far as I know, Henry Selleck's latest one has been Coraline. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, was that Lakaya Studios? I know they did Kubo and the Two Strings. I think it, it was Coraline that there yeah. was. That was like their first one, I think. But okay. it was directed That's by right. Henry Selleck. That movie is darker and scary. By far darker and scarier yes. than the Nightmare Before Christmas. Yes, it yes it yes it is. Uh, it is especially for a kids movie. It's really really pushing that PG rating. <laughs> oh but, yeah. Yes, I do remember reading that. I mean, maybe even seeing a clip of it at one point that Jack Skellington he he was in James the Giant Peach. Uh, of course, I haven't exactly seen the movie, but I do remember seeing 
or knowing at one point that he was in that movie and that was the same model that they used in the Nightmare Before, Nightmare Before Christmas. Okay, something that I thought was kind of confusing um, because of promotional material that I couldn't find too many details on was I know this is produced through Touchstone Pictures. Disney handed it off to them. But if you watch the teaser trailer for this movie, Disney is all over this. Disney really? is talking – Disney kind of gives you like a highlight reel of like Disney created the first full-length animated movie, Snow White, and then they used all this technology and all this innovation to create wonderful, magical stories. And now they're creating Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before – and it wasn't called The Nightmare Before Christmas. They didn't have the in the title. It was just called Nightmare Before Christmas in the teaser trailer. Hmm. And then it basically just kind of shows Tim Burton behind the scenes making the movie even though he was only there for like – five days or something <laughs> total in production right. but uh disney yeah the disney logo at the very beginning that was for the teaser trailer then you jump to the theatrical trailer disney's nowhere to be found and it immediately shows touchstone pictures so what i think is disney was at first excited about this but then that's why um, i probably saw it through those disney vhs's but then i think they thought eh I don't know. I think we should patch this on to Touchstone just in case this comes back against us. They might have gotten some pushback because I know the only other darker Disney animated movie was The Black Cauldron, and that was a mess and right. scared people. Yeah, yeah. That one's a whole another can of worms. <laughs> Somebody messed up with that one. That is interesting, though. I, I'm pretty. Sh I have a feeling that you're probably rather correct in that they didn't know how it would turn out, and they kind of accepted it, and then when it we kind of got maybe even got some backlash where they realized how dark it really is, which in reality isn't really all that yeah. dark, but for kids it is. Uh, they were like, eh, and gave it off the touchstone because that's their more adult or it's the not necessarily kid oriented uh, distribution company or film label. That's probably what I'm guessing. That's probably what happened. That makes the most logical sense to me. And I mean, I guess the other thing I thought was really fascinating while doing the research for this movie, despite it being called Tim Burton's the nightmare before Christmas and from what I understand, Tim Burton didn't necessarily want that. They just did that because they knew Tim Burton was a name. Uh, yes, this right. was his kind of original vision and his original ideas. But Henry Selleck played a huge role. And also, Burton didn't write this. It's just based on the characters and a story by him. Uh, it was really Michael McDowell Burton brought in who had worked on with Beetlejuice. And also then they later brought on Carolyn Thompson to do the script as well. So Burton is, is, he's kind of the brainchild, but a lot of other people deserve credit for bringing this to life as well. Right. It's interesting because usually when you hear Nightmare Before Christmas, you just kind of automatically think that that was all Tim Burton. That's not necessarily true. Um, yes, he did have the original inception of this movie. He did have the original ideas and his vision did come out on screen as far as we are aware, but he did not really have much, much hand once they got started. Everybody else, Henry Selleck and, Mar and Ma Michael McDowell and uh, people who work with them were the ones who actually got this train rolling. It wasn't necessarily a Tim Burton thing. He was the face and he was the one who came up with the idea but he did not necessarily oversee the project uh, in terms of having a physical hand on what was happening on the, on the scenes. Uh, he was more just there every once in a while, which is very, very interesting because you usually don't really hear about Henry Selleck in The Nightmare Before Christmas unless you actively look it up or anybody else who's really involved. It's always just Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. 
uh, and it's just kind of considered his project, even though the director is not Tim Burton, somebody else. Well, Alan, are we ready to give them the plot? I think we are. Now, of course, as usual, if you haven't seen The Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, there are going to be spoilers with this. We're going to go in depth with a lot of things, so if you can always go watch it, uh, I'm sure you can find it in many different places. It's quite a popular movie. Uh, anyways, so here's the here's the summary. Welcome to Halloween Town, a fantasy world where the ghouls and spooks of Halloween come from. At the helm is the Skeleton King, Jack Skellington, played by Chris Sarandon. However, Jack is unhappy with his job, doing the same thing each year. He wants something a little bit more. He wants, and he laments on top of a hill as Sally, a character akin to Frankenstein's monster, played by Catherine O'Hara, watches from afar, filling his yearn for something a bit more stimulating. We learn that Sally longs for escape and is constantly sneaking out of Professor F- uh, Professor Finkelstein's lab. Jack wanders into the woods and comes across do- a few doors at- to different holiday towns. But the door that catches his eye the most is the, Chris- the one with the Christmas tree on it. Jack opens the door and is sucked into Christmas Town. Here he believes to have found what he has wanted so much, a town completely opposite of his own. He returns to Halloween Town and explains the- the- explains Christmas this Christmas thing to the town folks in ways that they only they would understand. Jack begins to study this Christmassy thing through these scientific experiments, but concludes that he could do. But concludes that he could do it and maybe even improve on it. He involves Halloween Town, but most particularly is that of Boogie's children, Lock, Shock, and Barrel, and he asks them to to get to get him Sandy Claus, as they call him. Early on, though, Sally has a vision that things are about to end very horribly. She approaches Jack about this concern, but he does not necessarily listen to her and gives her the job of making the Santa costume. Ogie's kids then capture Sandy Claus in a mere few hours before Christmas begins, and to which Jack takes the hat and the kids take San- Sandy Claus away. The kids' intentions are a bit more mischievous as they deliver Sandy Claus to the infamous Boogie, who plays a chance with, with Santa's life. Despite Sally trying to keep Jack from taking off by causing fog to spread throughout the town, Zero, Jack's dog, comes to the rescue with his red nose. They fly off into the, real, into the real world, but things do not go so well. The presents Halloween Town made are not what you would call in the holiday spirit, as the toys come alive and begin to attack the residents. They successfully shoot down Jack, and the town believes that he is blown to smithereens. But Jack is still alive, as he awakens upon the arms of an angel in the graveyard, and the remnants of his sleigh and presents are strewn about. He laments once more, but realizes that he had a blast doing what he did, and returns to Halloween Town to find Santa, in suspicion that Boogie has something, has something to do with this. While this is happening, Sally went to Boogie's place to hopefully save Santa, but is caught herself. Before Boogie can dump them into the lava, Jack shows up and stops Boogie, pulling his cloth outfit out off of him to reveal that Boogie is actually just made of a bunch of bugs underneath. He disintegrates and Halloween Town sings to Jack's return. But Jack's last realization is that he is missing is what he was missing his entire time, which was Sally. She sits atop a hill that she watched Jack on, plucking the petals off of a dead weed as Jack arrives. They sing a duet and then embrace as credits roll. Something I hadn't really realized until I sat down in the theater and watched this movie is that it's only 76 minutes. Yeah, that's like really short, it's, like an hour and 16 minutes short. Well, yeah, especially for a theatrical movie, which tries to at least hit an hour and a half or get close to that um, 80 minutes, maybe. We see this kind of runtime for more so direct to video stuff. And stop motion movies are longer than this today, but creating a stop motion movie on this scale took a long time. As we told you in the 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 description earlier, 
It took them at least two years, probably, to shoot the movie. Right. And you had 20 different sets. And at one point, all 20 of those sets were being used at one time. Uh, if this was done like a normal movie would, where they have, where they shoot it in different locations, but they're all kind of not the same time, it would take around five or six years or so, I'm guessing, to shoot this entire movie if they did it one one scene after another after another uh, with little overlap. Luckily, they had some kind of, they were able to pipeline this, but took, even then, it takes a quite a long time to make a movie like this. Even today, so it takes quite a long yeah, time. Yeah, even even today it does. I know the, the Leica production company is kind of taking the charge with the Claymation movies, which I really right. enjoy those. I, I'm sure they've figured out a process. I don't know the process, but to speed it up, I'm sure they've innovated since the very early 90s. But that makes sense. But honestly, I don't think this movie really needs to be any longer than it is. Yeah. Uh, this. Yeah, that's very true. This is a very, very contained movie. And really, a longer runtime would probably be in its detriment. It's not necessarily something that is good or bad. It's... Honestly, a shorter runtime uh, is almost even adored here in this movie because it works so well. Yeah, it really does. I think it helps a lot with the pacing. It helps keeps the audience attention, especially they're asking the audience to buy into a thin skeleton, almost operatic singer sometimes. Danny, I I didn't know Danny right. Elfman was this had this kind of voice. Yeah, it, it's very surprising, and not just, yeah, he's a good singer. I mean, I guess that doesn't necessarily surprise me as much, but what surprises me more is that he sounds, his singing voice sounds so much like his acting voice, but they are not the same. Yeah, that was really cool to learn, because I had heard that before I knew that, but I had no idea it was Danny Elfman <laughs> singing. Right, right. Uh, very cool, but yeah, this movie, The Pacing, it's so well done, and it also does a really nice job of... Pretty much balancing between um, the two different characters of Jack and Sally, but then we're also introduced to the third character of Santa Claus, and we come back to him. So I think that is uh, definitely worthy of praise, how they're able to balance between these mostly three different storylines and keep it a tight plot and not feel like uh, we're being underserved or overserved with either of those. It's really well done. Yeah, and for the most part, I would say that this movie moves along at a pretty much steady pace. There were these, I think there's really only one time, and I'll mention it there a bit later, where I think the movie kind of dips into a little bit of a lull for a few minutes. But even then, it's still it's still a very fun ride, and that's why I was able to watch it again. No, I even wanted to watch it again when I was getting ready for this recording, is because it is just so quick, and it, there is nothing uh, that is there to last it a very long time. And so I was able to watch it twice just and once one time one of the times was just because i wanted to watch it again because i love this movie so much uh yeah it's very very quick but at the same time it's also something that uh even though it is really quick it still has such personality to it i would say that it's just like it's, this movie is once again kind of akin to uh tim burton himself and everybody else who's involved with this project it's just bursting with creativity and there's a lot of things that reference a lot of other things and most notably the script itself is referenced to Grinchel's to a christmas and also uh rudolph Rednose reindeer it's just but there's also so many other things in it too that in, in terms of this halloween town and how they take that and are able to even express how 
creative this is and how and how so many things are kind of puns on each other and things like that and it does such a really good job at creating this atmosphere of Halloween Town even though we never really see the entirety of Halloween Town in in, in one shot at all it's all kind of sectioned off but we this town has such a personality to it that really only Tim Burton could create and that Henry Selleck was able to pull off in such a great way and they do a nice job of filling our imagination like they give us that opportunity because instead of showing us everything they talk about it uh during one of their songs they're saying you know i looked i looked in the lake or the head behind the lake or whatever i looked behind the cyclops eye i trudged through the pumpkin patch of course i would love to see all of those things but at the same time that i I just wouldn't work with the pacing of the movie with the plot so what they do a really nice job of writing that in in such a way that it allows us to imagine what we would think those places would look like and i think that's a good job because it makes us more active instead of just passive viewers and it also engages us in a way that other movies don't um they're they're really uh showing us through our imagination instead of just giving it to us like that so yeah i've always liked that aspect of it as well that they really do bring out your imagination although this movie is so imaginative your imagination is still active during this movie yeah absolutely and i would even say that part of that is due to this opening scene because this opening scene is kind of it's i guess it's kind of famous uh it's something that really defines what exactly is it at Nightmare Before Christmas? It's this opening number. You get a little bit of a uh, narration from Vincent Price who kind of talks about what even is this world well, that we're in. Well, that actually wasn't Vincent Price. They originally wanted Vincent right. Price or or even James Earl Jones, but it was just local voice artist Ed Ivory. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Vincent Price did minute, uh, Vincent. Okay. The Vincent short. I did know that he did. I did know that he did Vincent. Uh, I I guess somewhere I heard that it was Vincent Price on opening, but I I guess I was wrong. Uh, anyways, it doesn't really matter. the The point is they the beginning of this movie is kind of really famous for its opening because the music, of course, is fantastic by Danny Elfman. But at the same time, it really sets up what this world is really quick, and then gives you right into the Halloween Halloween Town, which is I would even say by far the most interesting of any of the others that we could imagine, and really shows off the artistry of halloween town and how and how much expressionism is here especially german expressionism Uh, i know that that's a really big influence on this movie um and you really get to see a lot of this and you really get to see how danny elfman's music really plays into the story and how really without any of these songs the the movie would just be missing something and everything has a purpose and i really really do enjoy this opening and and i I will admit i've seen this movie enough where i can i know essentially all the lyrics to every single song of this movie so Half the time it was spent singing along uh, than anything else. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I was singing along in the theater, actually. My girlfriend would look over and see me singing the words. You, you just can't help but sing with this. Right. And it's just due to the fact that Diddy opened it a fantastic score. Oh, yeah. He absolutely did. And, yeah, the opening song to this movie, I can only describe it as just purely magical because they do this wonderful job of bringing you into this Halloween door and then this pumpkin uh, 
which could we maybe assume as Jack is pointing the way, uh, the scarecrow with the pumpkin on it is pointing the way into Halloween Town, and then right. they bring it bring us into it. And I've always kind of viewed this as this is kind of their yearly Halloween ritual, where they right. kind of sing and celebrate. And Jack is on a weird horse, and he jumps off on fire, um, and then he jumps in the fountain and he rises up. Bizarre to say the least, but still also quite magical and unique because we really hadn't seen this kind of thing before but i just had the biggest smile on my face when you see jack just rising up out of the the fountain and he smiles oh so well done yeah and that's kind of interesting too because jack is the very last character that we were introduced to in halloween town uh he we, we they talk about of course during the song they talk about up they talk about talk it up about how he's the skeleton king and beware of the skeleton king and things like that and then we really don't ever see his face until he pops in the fountain and comes out and rises up and that's when uh we finally get jack skeleton uh we actually get a face the name of jack skeleton whoever is the whoever is the skeleton king and things like that yeah really really well done opening one that i of course it's gone down in the history books is just one of one of those openings that is just so well known because it has such a great influence on just really the film itself and it's also interesting too because uh, we are okay, we are introduced to the main love interest with Sally, and we are introduced to uh, Oogie Oogie Boogie. And we only really see his shadow in the moon, though, as he as he explains, "I'm the shadow in the moonlit night, uh, filling your dreams with the brim with fright." And we see it, like, it's more of just like an animation. It's kind of like a draw, more or less a a drawing or something like that of him singing. Uh, but then we get Sally right after that, and we get this vo- this verse of "I'm the wind blowing through your hair," which kind of insinuates that she kind of really wants to be free before even dialogue before any dialogue actually comes out of her. We have to get this really quick setup of who her character kind of is before we actually get to talk with her or really experience her character more or less. Yeah, I think they do a great job of giving us a quick introduction to the characteristics of each of these characters. Uh, right. We know most of them are fairly benign, it seems like, except Oogie Boogie seems to be menacing, and Sally seems to just be kind of kind, and that's a good point, talking about the wind blowing through her hair um, as just kind of that, uh, she can't be tied down, you can't really capture the wind, like you can't capture her, right. and Oogie is kind of this uh, slippery guy that he's kind of hard to get hold of, he's elusive. And uh, I always noticed the puppet strings on the bats flying, especially when I saw it in the theater. Right. Yeah, I noticed that this time around, uh, I saw the strings on the bats. They're kind of hard to miss, especially once you notice them for the first time. I mean, honestly, though, now you could look at this movie and think that uh, all this animation is old and it's really not great because things are so sticky and they they don't really move as naturally. But... That's something that I absolutely just I absolutely love about this movie is that yeah there are some small mistakes and there are some not so perfect animation but it also kind of just adds to the charm of this movie of being this dark somewhat only Halloweeny kind of uh, of a tone here and similar to maybe even Blade Runner or something like that where the model work had it not been done in this kind of a way would have been a detriment to the film any other way would not have worked and I think that this is just kind of my love for the imperfect where things are not so great, not so perfect, but that's what makes it so great is that it is, you can tell that there's a lot of work being put into this, even though it's not 
what we consider today be perfect like Kubo and the Two Strings, which is which to be fair has fantastic animation, but even now having all those mistakes and having all those sticky really sticky animations, I think just adds to the mo- as the personality of this movie. I absolutely agree. I feel like this style of claymation is it's kind of one of those weird things where usually as time goes on things are they like get better and yes they technically have gotten better but i guess visually the style i think this is kind of the pinnacle of where the style just kind of was perfected and looked great at least to me anyway because in the 50s you had gumby which i love gumby but it's nowhere near the caliber of the nightmare before christmas and yeah the the later Gumbies did get better. The Gumby movie looks pretty good, um, and yeah, like we like you said with Kubo and the two strings and the box trolls and things like that. I uh, I love those movies, but the animation is almost a little too fluid. It almost looks a little too computerized in a certain way that I just don't think has that claymation nostalgic feel for me. Although I do love the claymation, this is kind of that. Uh, kind of perfect time period for me as far as claymation goes right and i'll even say that uh wes anderson especially i haven't really seen fantastic mr fox but at least with isle of dogs you can kind of see that he i've read something about this he deliberately kind of made the hairs on the dogs move between the different shots uh because he wanted to get that more archaic e feel like kind of like this, uh, not necessarily to the same style, but he also kind of wanted to get that there are mistakes made here in uh, in making a claymated movie, and he did that on purpose. And I think that that just kind of added to the movie in terms of style for that one. And even here, even though that may it may or not be on purpose, uh, it just it continues to add to the style of Halloween Town and uh, even the movie all over all, all of itself. Just seeing those imperfections, I absolutely love that kind of stuff. And even for the early 90s, for the time period, I still think the animation is incredibly fluid for especially um, what I would perceive as very difficult characters to manipulate and animate, especially in how they move because we have characters of all shapes and sizes. And I, I mean, I, I guess I personally find Jack to be the most impressive how he's animated with how many facial expressions he exhibits and then just how, uh, cause he's so wiry with his limbs, but he's able to move in such a way where I just can't even believe sometimes how they would animate that. Cause yeah, you, you do forget like, wow, th- this is somebody moving this a centimeter and then taking a shot, stop move it another centimeter, take a shot, stop. I mean, that's how they originally did it. I don't know how they do it now, but that's just incredibly impressive how they were able to do that. And I think when you have that in mind, I think you can appreciate this even more. Right. And and yeah, I mean, and now I think one of my small criticisms of this movie is uh, not necessarily the expressions of the main characters, but the expressions of the side, the, I guess more that's the background characters, especially those in Halloween Town. And even in the Christmas Town uh, is even worse, but I give that one a bit more of a pass. Because Halloween Town has a big influence on this movie and is a big part of it. The, the, my problem here is that when you get past the main characters like Jack and Sally and the mayor, uh, maybe even a couple of the, of the background characters... The majority of the background characters don't really have much expression to them. Um, their faces are kind of just straight on, and their eyes are really the only thing that is 
causing the expression. There is one character that actually kind of works, and that's with the big guy with the axe in his, or with the uh, with the cleaver in his head. Uh, but when every character kind of looks like that, it not necessarily pulls me out. Don't get me wrong, but it is a criticism that I have to bring up. Where I'm just like, well, not everybody has as much expression as any as the main characters do. It is there. Once again. I I think half of it kind of adds to the movie, but at the same time, it would have been nice to see a bit more expression on these characters. I can understand that. I guess I didn't really have a problem, though, with those things. Yeah, they do seem very placid, and maybe that just is because they're these weird creatures. I don't know. But um, I guess maybe the only uh, facial designs that I just kind of thought were just a little too strange maybe were actually the humans in the real world yeah yeah the the elves are uh, the, the humans and let's say even the elves um are even worse in that department see i didn't mind the elves i liked the elves i guess just the humans with just very odd shaped heads and bodies and mm-hmm. um i did like burton's or i don't know whose choice it was actually i did like their choice not to show uh the parents uh, heads we never see yeah. the heads of the parents we see you know partial images of their body as the closest thing we get to seeing an adult face is the uh, very shadowed police officer's face as he patrols through the city but i right. liked that the focus is kept on the children and uh it's the it's never brought to the adults it's the children who are so excited that santa as they think has come to find the presence um that kind of gave me a bit of a charlie brown feeling how we right. never see any adults and we never hear like their real voices. So I thought that was a really good choice. Right. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the animation is bad in any any kind of way. I think that the design for everything is very creative, no matter what it is, even if it has expression or no expression. Uh, what I mean to say with the elves is that, now, to be fair, we spend very, very little time with the elves, so it's totally fine. That doesn't that's not necessarily a criticism for that part of the of my of my spiel here, with them not being animated very, especially their faces not being very animated. Uh, but the elves, they really don't change expressions at all. Their their mouths don't even move when they are on the screen. To be fair, once again, it's not that big of a deal with them because they are so background characters that. It doesn't really matter. My more my my guess my criticism, and maybe this is just because I'm spoiled by more recent uh, releases of claymation, where everybody has a great expression to them. Um, I would, uh, I guess, I would have liked to see more expression with the background characters, maybe even give Halloween Town a more of a, more of a personality, more so than it already has. Maybe that would take it away. I don't know. Maybe it could have just been part of the uh, part of the innovation for the time. It could have been a number of things. But that is something that I do kind of want to bring up, at least. Yeah, I guess I, I guess that n- never really bothered me. Uh, I, I do like the elves a lot. I think they're pretty unique, and uh, I don't know. I guess it kind of just draws our focus more so to Jack and how expressive he is, and how excited he is within within the situation. And they're kind of just these merry little creatures that he's just kind of astonished by. The only creatures that i can think of that um kind of bothered me were the express were well i guess the lack of expression on the vampire's face i felt like that was a little lazy yeah. honestly uh, their faces are incredibly small and they they never exhibit any expressions um 
I don't know, like we get we get even expressions from the creepy little fat kid with the stitches on his face and um the little werewolf guy and so yeah, I love all of those things, but the vampires are always a bit of a disappointment for me. I think they're designed as well. I just think yeah, I would have liked a little bit more from their just tiny little faces, I guess. I don't know. Right. Right. That's kind of what that's kind of where I'm getting at. I think the vampires I probably should have mentioned this earlier. They definitely are the biggest, I guess, example of what I'm trying to get at. Uh, once again, it's a rather mundane kind of criticism, I would say. But the vampires are definitely the uh, the ones that I would say are the best example of not much expression on their faces. And part of that is due to their probably to their design. Their faces are incredibly small compared to the rest of their bodies, so they kind of exhibit more expression through their bodies than they do with their faces. In that kind of an aspect. But yeah. Yeah, I, I do say that I did like um their take on classic like we we would associate with like universal monster creatures. Yeah. But I understand they were created before. Um yeah, Wolfman, a creature from the Black Lagoon is kind of a weird looking one in this one. Um we don't really get any Frankenstein, do we? I would say that Sally is more or less the Frankenstein's monster okay, that's, thing that's here. fair enough. Uh, then you've also got Dr. Frank, uh, Frankelstein is his yeah. name. That Dr. Frankenstein, of course. Everything has a play on some kind of the the classic universal monsters. Somewhere in Halloween Town, there's something that that references all those in some kind of weird way, Tim Burton way. Yeah, the creepiest ones I always thought were... Uh, the mom and her son, the, they're just like really lumpy yeah. and they've got weird stitches or something going on. Those are always just so weird to me. And I also thought the tree, the movable tree with the skeletons hanging from it. Oh, yes. Those were probably the most morbid or probably dark creations of this. But I really do like how everything has a unique take on these creatures um, where the the genders are different, possibly. The, the mm-hmm. creature from the Black Lagoon is a female. Uh, Sally is a female Frankenstein. She looks different. So I will say those designs are innovative. And Finkelstein is a fun character. But I would say aside from uh, Jack and Sally, my favorite characters are uh, Lock, Shock, and Barrel. Yeah, those are... I, th- I, could, I, I don't think I can't... I don't think I can say that there are... How do I say this? There are no bad designed character, no poorly designed characters in this movie at all, especially in Halloween Town. This is where I say that it has a lot of personality. It's a lot through like the design of the architecture. The car. There's a lot to the, the it's a lot to do the design of the architecture in terms of the buildings in Halloween Town, but especially through these characters that they've created. Even though they may not have a lot of expression to them, at least in today's day and age, there are a lot of their personality is shown through their character design. Uh, especially with uh, I, one of my favorite examples of this is actually the I, I how do I explain this? He's got it's the guy with these spiders, uh, these snakes' fingers and the spiders in his hair and a spider in his yeah, hair. Yeah, creepy. Uh, who who hides under the stairs? I think yeah, hides under the stairs. Uh, I, I don't know his name, but he it's such a creative design. I don't know. Maybe you can answer this, but I don't know where he comes from and if he even is a universal monster. But he's one of my more favorite examples of something that is just so unique. Like, how do you even explain it? Yeah, I would say him. And there's also the guy who makes the turtle into a hat, but Jack suggests a bat. 
for the hat. Oh yes. He has like his whole like his whole mouth is open in a 360 degree area except for like this little right. thing connecting the top of his head to the bottom of his body. Um those two are very unique. I think they're just innovations of probably Tim okay. Burton and the design team. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all uh, to kind of put their own thing in there. Yeah, there are some, even when they're not, I mean, it really just any character in general is just so creatively designed in this movie that it it, it makes it so unique to see all these characters even work together and thing and all sorts of stuff. I I can't give this movie enough praise for at least its design alone because it looks it looks so good, especially with with the claymation style and, and how everything is supposed to look very miniature and it's supposed to look fake. But they have such an expression to them and how they are, and how they move about and things like that. Really, really great job. I want to talk about some of our favorite song sequences because the songs in this movie are just dynamic. And oh, of course. I know my favorite song and my favorite my favorite sequence of the whole movie comes really not that far into it. And I guess I was surprised. I was like, wow, we're getting to it pretty much right away because after Jack, they do the Halloween ceremony, he gives a big smile, but you actually come to find out He's actually depressed. He just thinks there has to be more to life than essentially just looking forward to this one goal. And for Jack, it becomes more about the ritual and the routine than the actual celebration and meaning behind it. And uh, we first get Jack's lament um, when he goes into the graveyard, which is also the pumpkin patch. This is so iconic. Ever since I saw this uh, bit of it in the teaser trailer when he's walking down the stock i saw it when i was like five years old probably i've never forgot it it is just one of the best visuals that i've ever seen and it's so cool because the the giant moon behind him that's actually a flashlight oh yeah, really they just sh- they just shown a flashlight but it works so well uh yeah uh it's incredible uh watching that especially in the theater that definitely reignited the kid in me and i just had this huge smile on my face while watching that scene not only because uh we get this you know cool reference to um hamlet which i have uh i'm trying to think it's probably like a foot and a half tall i have that on my nightstand of jack holding his head and it's on a big pillar it says the nightmare before christmas in his head lights up but uh, i'm also really impressed with the camera movement in this especially when we get this um downward shot that also kind of swings around while jack is singing i always found that really impressive how they could animate the character and move the camera in such a fluid motion at the same time but the visuals and the singing i sing it often this is my favorite scene in the movie yeah, there are so many good scenes in terms of musical numbers in this movie. This one, I think that the one that you're talking about is probably the most visually best-looking scene in the entire movie. And I would say using up there for just one of the best scenes in terms both of visuals and in terms of music. Because you really it really sets in uh, what Jack is thinking in this scene. I really like this dichotomy between the verses to talk about, oh, this is all the things that I'm able to do. I'm able to scare people out of their pants. And a guy from Kentucky would call me unlucky. And things like that through all these verses. But then when you get to the chorus, which is always the most important part of the song, it gets to the inner parts of his mind. And he's like, I'm not very happy with this. I do this thing every single year. And it's the same thing over and over and over again. I want something new, you know. 
and it really shows the how he's kind of torn between these two worlds of wanting to pursue something moving more than what he is, but kind of being stuck in this is kind of his job and things like that. And of course, you've got Sally overwatching this whole thing. And yeah, that gorgeous sequence of him up on a hill singing with the giant moon behind him is absolutely iconic and looks so good. And probably one of the best shots in this entire movie, which is filled with great, great cinematography, I would say, which is funny because it's all shot on a digital camera. But, or I guess maybe it's a film camera. It doesn't matter. Despite that being the case, this is a fantastic sequence. And I would say in terms of maybe song choice i would have to say probably the town meeting song is my favorite song choice of this entire of this of this whole movie but it's so close to jack's lament and then the next the later version of jack's song there towards the end and of course the original the beginning song and then maybe even sally's song uh are all just so so iconic and so good it's hard to pick between them but probably the town meeting song is my favorite song out of it because you kind of get to see how he explains Christmas, but then begins to realize that, oh, crap, I need to do it in different terms. And then you've also got Sal's song, which I think is might be up there with my favorite as the town meeting song, even though it is so short. Maybe Sal's song. Uh, well, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of torn between like four of them. But in terms of the pick one, I guess I could probably could say Sal's song the more I think about it. Just because it is just so short, but you really get to see how she's dreading this outcome because she knows it's going to happen. And she's tried to warn Jack, but it's kind of just futile. It's so short, but it it shows so much and has this really great shot of her up against the gate. And it's like kind of at a a slightly askew angle. Uh, and she's singing and it looks so good with the moonlight behind her. I would say my other favorite songs are, of course, the opening song. Um, This is Halloween. Also, I really did enjoy... Uh, what's this and the graveyard song at the end after he crashes and lands in the graveyard i also find that to probably be the most frightening imagery where he's in this graveyard and he's on fire well he's not on fire but there's lots of fire around him and this very kind of creepy angel he's in the arms of this creepy looking angel um i'm pretty sure that actually gave me a bad dream uh, that angel, I I still remember that dream, right? <laughs> um, but nevertheless, that's a good song, and there's actually quite a bit of meaning within the song. Um, do you have a least favorite song? Yeah, um, and this kind of goes along with what I mentioned earlier in terms of pacing. It's it's between the making Christmas and Oogie Boogie song. And it's kind of unfortunate they happen one right after the other. Um, I Those are my two least favorite. I would probably say my least favorite least favorite is probably Making Christmas. Uh, I don't know why. Not entirely a big fan of that song. Not to say it is bad. It's definitely not bad. But in terms of everything else that's here, it is probably my least favorite. Yeah, it, um, it was actually originally going to be longer. So... I'm sure you're glad it wasn't. Yeah, there was originally, um, you can check it out on the Blu-ray. There's a deleted sequence where they're singing extra long. It's it's like the Wolfman or it's the guy with the snakes for fingers. They sing an extra thing. And then the guy with the axe in his head, who, as far as I know, never talks. He does sing in this sequence. And it's almost operatic. It is completely out of tune with the rest of the song it's really weird i guess burton was really sad they had to cut it i'm glad that really would have messed up the song for me 
it's weird. Should check it out. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah, um, I can understand why you would say making Christmas is that way. Um, it's I it's the probably the most forgettable of all the songs for me. Yeah, I uh, that's just one that. where it's like, oh, yeah, the songs. And it's like, oh, wait, that is one of the songs. I just don't think about that. I guess what kind of softens it for me is I do like to see their weird creations, how they're trying to make toys and yeah, I don't know, whatever they're making. And it just is really kind of morbid right. and weird what they do. So that's fun. But yeah, I don't really care for the song. Miley's favorite song is Oogie Boogie with Santa. Yeah, that one is this one. Uh, Making Christmas and Boogie Boogie song are relatively close for me. I guess I just kind of like that more jazzy style with Boogie Boogie song because it is very different from everything else in the soundtrack, but still kind of fits in to a certain degree. But yeah, I'm kind of with you. That is my second least favorite song in this entire soundtrack. Once again, not bad, but not I'd also say that's probably my least favorite part in the whole movie where we've got these weird almost neon colors and Oogie is like a gambler i guess and the slot machines that shoot guns and he's basically throwing santo along and santa gets to sing as well moaning skeletons i just don't look forward to this part when it comes to the movie but i don't hate it and i don't hate these it two songs, but i'm just not, not my favorite yeah of course of course and that's kind of my thing when i mentioned earlier and i'll kind of explain this now is in terms of pace for the most part it's fine it does a really good job of keeping you engaged. But once we get, I think it's after uh, Ogie's Kids, after they have a song, the movie begins to kind of go downhill for a little bit for me because you have this song of Making Christmas, which I'm not necessarily a big fan of. Uh, and then you've also got Oogie Boogie's song not long after that, which I'm also not a big fan of. It kind of hits this lull for a little bit for my own personal stuff. For other people, if you like those songs, this might not be me. The, might not even apply to you but for me it's just like there's like this lull where not much of what came before it and what's going to come after it feels as if it's uh i guess impacting me as much as it, as much as everything else is but it only lasts for maybe 10 minutes i would say and the rest of it is relatively uh really high energy and does a really good job with music and stuff this is the moment where i'm just like ah, not a big fan of this section of the movie it is relatively yeah short, i though. would say the the scenes that are kind of detracting a little unnecessary is I understand I don't have a problem with Sally and Finkelstein together, but then we also just get Finkelstein on his own trying to choose a head for a new wife. And I don't really see how that plays into the story too much aside from Sally has abandoned him and he wants somebody else. Now there actually is an alternate ending that we'll get to in a little bit. That might make those scenes with Finkelstein, you know, a little more justified. But I would say otherwise, yeah, it's just kind of like randomly, why are we focusing on him? We don't do it much, but there is just enough to kind of question, why do we need to watch him choose different wives' heads and like slop his brain into hers? Right. I would say that that part never really bothered me. I kind of liked it because Sally does kind of give him the idea. She says, well, why don't you just make somebody else? Uh, and then he later on goes off and does it. It actually makes another wife for himself. Although there is an interesting detail. It's kind of funny. Uh, When he gives her half of his brain, uh, he keeps the right half, and he gives her the left half. And I learned in psychology that speech production 
is made in the left half of the brain. And one of the lines he says is, now we'll have meaningful <laughs> conversations. And in my own mind, I'm thinking, okay, he shouldn't even be talking right now because the speech production side of his brain is in his wife. And the the right side of the brain is not necessarily... It's more, the right side is more for speech um, understanding, uh, discernment, I guess is what it's considered, and a lot more creativity. Uh, it's just a funny detail, not necessarily that anything that's going to be taking away for, or editing to the movie at all, but a funny detail, funny detail that I just kind of wanted to mention is this one thing that I learned in psychology. That, that is recently. funny. I'm sure they probably put that in there on purpose. Yeah. I will <laughs> say the most morbid yeah. song, the darkest, is Lock, Shock, and Barrel's song about kidnapping Santa Claus. They're talking about yep. like drowning him or like finding his corpse after a thousand years or something it's just really morbid stuff if you listen to the song and i can definitely see why that would be something you probably wouldn't want your kids to be exposed to it too young because christmas is supposed to be happy and santa well you get to watch santa be kidnapped and kind of tortured and they sing about how they're going to just kind of do evil things to him and how they're so excited to for that. And it's like, oh, okay, that's a little dark. Right, right. It is, it, that is a very interesting song because uh, Ogie's kids are not necessarily the main characters of the story at all. They're really only here for this one part. And they sound, for whatever reason, they have their own song. Don't get me wrong. The songs, I really do like the, the tune of the song. But yeah, you are right. It is very, very interesting that they are talking about how they're going to lock him away for 60 years and see if he croaks or something like that. It's a very interesting song coming from a lot of kids. Uh, I mean, to be fair, it is Halloween Town and they do work for Oogie Boogie. But still, it is a very interesting song. They're definitely the most devilish characters, but I like how they yeah. still respect Jack. And I still, th I think Oogie Boogie has... I don't know I don't even know if he fears Jack. He's kind of this weird anomaly that hangs out in the basement of Lock Shock and Barrel's house and he's probably the probably the weirdest character because he's a made of bugs, but he's still intelligent yeah. and he has sackcloth wrapped around him. Right. This is one of our another issue that I have is that Oogie Boogie's character doesn't do much until the 45 minute mark you do get introduced to him in the very beginning and then it's kind of reiterated there when they when the kids mention oogie boogie and uh it really isn't until the about the 45 minute mark when we finally get to see oogie boogie do something he, he's kind of been non a non-character for most of the most of the movie up until this point um, then he becomes a main character, main the main antagonist uh, there towards the latter half. I would have liked to see him incorporated a bit more, but at the same time, it, it seems a bit hard to do that because I don't really see where his scenes would fit in with the rest of the story. And maybe that was part of the issue when it came to editing this movie or even maybe even writing the script. Uh, Oogie Boogie didn't exactly have a really good place anywhere else in the story except for where we put him here in, in this editing process. I would have liked to see him more to kind of I guess, build up his character a bit more before we meet him. But once again, everything else in the movie, everything else in the movie is really exceptional. It does kind of overshadow this for the most part, but it is still there. Yeah, I would agree with that. The The three kids are supposed to, which I really like their design, by the way. Um, they're supposed to, I don't know what they're supposed to do with Santa Claus. He says, just basically 
just keep him over there or something, but they give him to Oogie Boogie for Oogie Boogie to just treat like a cat with a mouse as a plaything. Right. And that's what they weren't supposed to right, do. Yeah. Right. That, that, from what I understand, they were just going to have Santa stay in Halloween Town for the night while Jack goes off and essentially takes control of Christmas. Uh, of course, once he gets the hat from Santa, the kids just kind of take him away and Jack thinks nothing of it. Uh, even though he said, keep that no good oogie boogie out of this. They are. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it is also interesting to bring up, too, is that they when they first leave, they grab this, they grab the Easter Bunny. And then they go to they bring go back to get Santa and drop off the Easter Bunny as well, and they take an entire month <laughs> to return to Halloween Town with Santa. I oh, thought that was they? kind of interesting. Yeah, because they leave. Uh, you see the countdown, but you they leave before the countdown happens. And when we see the countdown, like the days to Xmas, it's like thirty days, and then it counts down to like one, and then they show up with with uh, Santa. We get to see, get to see them uh, bag Santa after this day countdown thing well that would make sense that's true i guess i never thought about that <laughs> uh, who knows why that's that might be a bit of a flaw i don't know that's strange yeah it could be an editing thing maybe the best place to show the kids kidnapping santa was at this one point in the movie but it is something that i do want to bring up and show and say at least mention there is something here that i noticed that at least looks like a flaw to me. Yeah, I guess the I guess although Oogie Boogie is probably my least favorite character along with the sequences, we needed some kind of antagonist for Jack to go up against. Somebody that we can't like at all because despite the creatures being a little creepy, we still like all of them. They're not malicious, whereas Oogie right. Boogie is essentially evil. So we needed somebody for him to go up against and whereas, you know, Santa Claus represents the good of Christmas Town and Jack is the good of Halloween Town. Well, then we needed the antithesis of both of those things, and we needed the grimy, dirty side of Halloween Town, which is this creepy gambler singer who <laughs> is basically a sackcloth of bugs. Which I just think that's supposed to probably show he's just essentially rotted away, and he's just right. a pile of bugs. So I, on that level, it works. And I would, but, yeah, I would say that the reason why he's here is to kind of show that there is a danger that uh, there will be no more Christmas because Oogie Boogie insinuates at one point and then proceeds to uh, try and kill Santa later on. So my guess is the reason why he's here is to show that he's going to take Santa and he's going to kill Santa for whatever reason. Um, and that will be the end for the most part of Christmas itself. And that Jack, uh, Jack and his, in his want to, to try and do something new and pick up Christmas town as a thing ends up getting Santa involved with this whole thing. And then almost has him killed and almost destroys that holiday. And then almost destroys himself while trying to do his own Christmas thing. Uh, that was my guess is why Boogie's here. I mean, it makes sense to me that he is here and being a gambling person, how he's chancing things away. And it kind of shows the negative side of, what Oogie Boogie could do and the negative side of Halloween Town, the worst they have. But at the same time, also, it it is also interesting that Oogie Boogie is not necessarily introduced until quite late into the movie. Once again, uh, would have liked to see him more. I do like that they uh, show that Santa has a chance of dying and that could be the end. But luckily they pull him out of it. 
I want to talk about Jack's character arc for a little bit here because I think it's relatable okay. not just to kids but to adults as well. I think it's really well done. So Jack is – he's become uh, just disillusioned or disappointed with uh, his Halloween ritual despite himself being appointed for such a task and – I think that does speak to everybody how we are all given a role in this life and we all have a purpose and a place, but at times we kind of want to reject that. We kind of want to run away, kind of want to escape and don't want to uh, bear those responsibilities anymore. And ultimately because it becomes more so about the ritual and just doing the thing and forgetting about the depth and meaning of it and, um, that could be our fault. I believe it's probably partially our fault, but um, because Jack is the leader and uh, we see how impressionable the Halloween town people are because whatever Jack proposes, they say, ooh, I like it. Let's do it. And it's kind of funny because Jack, he doesn't realize that he's just essentially doing the same thing. He's just replacing one thing with another. He thinks, oh, wow, this newfangled Christmas thing where we just give presents and I become somebody completely else that'll fix everything but if he pursued it long enough he'd become um, unsatisfied with that as well and I think that speaks to us as well whether that's uh, with our with our relationships with our family with our work or different places uh, whether you're religious or not if it just becomes about the ritual and just doing it just to do it because you have to essentially then you'll completely miss the point and you'll become dissatisfied. Um, so I think this movie is kind of a good cautionary tale to guard against um, that complacency and find our purpose and joy wherever we're placed at in life. Right. It's kind of one of those things where everybody has a certain place in society and that you need to do the best that you can with what you're good at. And in this instance, Jack tries to do something that he has no real good reason to be a part of because he is just so opposite of this thing, but then takes it up anyways because he feels as if that's what he needs to do in order to reinvigorate himself. When in reality, the solution to what he's missing has been staring him right in the face the entire movie, which is Sally in this case. And that Christmas and taking over Christmas time and doing his own Christmas thing is just going to make things so much worse for everybody and especially himself even though he doesn't necessarily realize that even after being told by Sally multiple times that this is a bad idea. I really do enjoy this fact, even though it may be a bit shallow. Uh, it isn't necessarily explored very much, but to be fair, there is so much else here that it really doesn't, it's, that really is more of a nitpick, I would say. I know that that is a kind of a common criticism of this movie, that is a, that it is rather shallow. Um but yeah, you do kind of see that Jack, he takes on this role that he was never meant to take on and tries to do things really without realizing that the, what he's doing is going to ruin this one thing. Luckily, though, uh, Santa is able to bring things back and fix it all. But it is quite an interesting story to see how Jack thinks he can do so much with something that is rather opposite of what he is and so try and apply everything that he knows and that he knows and loves into this thing that is so opposite. Of course, it doesn't work. And I do, like I said, I think it works also for a younger audience as well. Because, uh, you know, when you're a kid at any time in your life, you like, oh, I want to be somebody different or I want to do something else. 
And I do think this movie does teach that good lesson of being yourself is the best person you can be because only you can do it right and only you are unique in such a way. And I do love that realization when Jack is in the He's moping, he's depressed, he's been shot down. He's like, you know what? Christmas doesn't want me, Halloween doesn't want me, great. But then he realizes that, wait a minute, I I am the Pumpkin King. That's what I can do and what I am. And I love that realization that he has, and especially how it's depicted on screen, how he rips off his Santa outfit and yells, I am the Pumpkin King. Um, So I do think that... Yeah, it's, it's possible it could have been explored a little more. That might have been hard to do with this short of a runtime, but it also being more so directed towards kids. I think they did a good job of capturing that lesson. And then when you are an adult, kind of, uh, I think when you become an adult, you become a little more cynical with different things in the world. And I think this movie does a good job of kind of uh, possibly bringing you back down and lessening some of that cynicism of the world too not just only have fun with this movie, but also kind of reinvigorate that lesson within you. And even the kind of childlike concept of being yourself and forgetting about um, just the ritual and finding a deeper passion with it. Right. And I would say that my only real criticism with this whole thing is not necessarily what it's saying, but more or less how it's kind of presented. We get so much of not really just Sally, but just kind of in general, they reference, they foreshadow this ending a lot in this movie, which to a certain extent, it kind of goes a bit overboard because it gets to a point where I'm just like, even now I'm just like, okay, well, I, if I would be able to see that this is going to end poorly, essentially from the first time that Sally sees this vision that she has when she pick, when she plucks the weed and then the weed turns into a, well, that's a Christmas tree looking kind of a thing and then burns down. We know from that point on, which is relatively early on in the movie, that this movie is going to end rather poorly with for Jack, at least, and that he's going to fail. We know that from the very beginning. And the movie does not necessarily try to hide the fact that that is the ending. That is a criticism that I do uh, think is kind of warranted for this film, is that it, it foreshadows a lot for that ending, um, which is fine, but they don't really keep it very subtle at all it's rather well, obvious yeah i guess particularly in that scene when it's extremely heavy-handed of a christmas tree on fire right why did it become a christmas tree i don't know um that is a little odd i i guess i can agree with that scene just being completely unnecessary whereas we really don't need that scene sally knows hey you're the pumpkin king it's probably not a good idea to kidnap people and steal their job I don't think that's going to work out very well. That would have been enough. Aside, from, we didn't need that scene, right? Right, and then I mean, even if they just had that scene once, and then had Sally warn him once or something like that, or maybe just not had the scene at all, and just had only Sally warning him, I think this probably would have made it a bit uh, not as so in your face about it. I mean, it's not that bad, but it is something that is there, and it is interesting. Uh, that they decide to make it as clear as possible. That is something about this movie. It isn't very subtle about things, which isn't necessarily a terrible criticism, but it's something that I do want to bring up. Uh, same time, though, this is a rather, uh, it is more of a kid's movie, so I understand why it is a bit more subtle, or not as subtle as with a lot of things, but it is a criticism. Yeah, that I do want I'm to sure kind of directing it towards a kid audience, they had to drive some of this home a little harder just for them to probably pick up on those things because they would be so entranced with the music and the characters 
they might kind of miss the story and they might get confused. I don't know that for certain though. That would be my only guess why right. they kind of hit things home a bit harder is for that purpose. And I mean, despite those things, I'm still going to say that their character arcs are fairly well done. And Sally's is well done as well because she wants yes. to find love and acceptance. She does and she wants to be saw saw as an equal and not just as a stay-at-home companion to an old man. Right, right. And I like that the whole time she's kind of somewhat been pursuing Jack. She, We find out really early on that she does like him. Uh, but she's also kind of having to deal with her father, uh, technically speaking. I guess her creator, who is Dr. Finkelstein, who is always trying to rein her in and have her do things for him. Essentially, she's making him... He's making her, her his servant in this in this uh, in his lab, but she can't stand that. She has she wants to get out. She feels trapped. Um, yeah, she has a very good. Everybody really has a everybody who has one, I guess, has a very good character arc here. Well, very well defined one, especially with Jack and her, and that they find each other. And uh, that's the one thing I really do enjoy is that is the thing that has been staring him in the face literally this entire movie is the thing that is missing in his life, and it's Sally who is. Also, kind of the thing who shows that she wants to be free, just as, just the same as Jack does, but free in a way where he's still contained within what he's really, really good yeah, at doing. Yeah, and I just, once again, I think that's a lesson to all of us, is oftentimes we want something new and different, yeah. whereas what we really need is usually right there in front of us, but we're just too right. obsessed with something else to be able to notice that. So I, I think the movie uh, kind of teaches us that lesson fairly well. Um, and right. I, I can go ahead and talk about the original ending actually. So in the original ending, okay. uh, it, it goes pretty much the same route as this one, except when Jack rescues them from Sally and Santa from Oogie Boogie and he rips off Oogie Boogie's sackcloth instead of bugs, it was actually going to be Dr. Finkelstein. So basically, Dr. Finkelstein had been Oogie Boogie this whole time, and he was kind of orchestrating this in a way to get revenge on Jack, especially because he hated that Sally loved Jack and didn't love him. And he was like, Jack, you stupid twit. Sally loves you. And, you know, she's been right there in front of you this whole time. Like, it clearly spells it out. So I'm I didn't really care for that, and I'm sure you wouldn't care for that either. Um, so yeah, yeah, I don't think that would have worked right. out and very you, well. And you realize he didn't need a wheelchair this whole time. It was like a ruse. And on the spinning table, the spinning you know roulette table, he had Igor working down inside of it, and he has Igor pop up and like pull him off the ledge, and they like disappear together and. So that would have been Oogie Boogie's original conception and the original ending for the movie. Interesting. That, mm, yeah, I don't think that would have worked out very well. I think it works a lot better with what we have, um, with Oogie Boogie being made of a bunch of bugs. Yeah, yeah that just seems strange. That, that feels like it could almost be out of left field as well for Dr. It would have been too Scooby-Doo for me. I I wouldn't yeah. have liked that at yeah. all, where it would have been extremely cliche, and it would have completely changed Finkelstein's character to this kind of weird, likable, right. 
old man who I who I always thought was pretty funny. Um, that would have kind of messed things up. So I'm glad they didn't do that. Yeah, yeah, I, I am too. Speaking of Igor, I love Igor <laughs> so much. The only line he has is "Master the plans." <laughs> And throws him on the table. That's the only line he has in this whole movie. That's the only time we really ever see yeah. him in this whole movie, too. It is, it, but it is, is just funny. really funny. Um, the only other changes to this movie, there wasn't too much as far as deleted scenes went, but there was one. Um, you know, at the end when the vampires are playing um, hockey on the ice with the pumpkin. Originally, that was yeah. Tim Burton's head. Yeah, so there's a full animated sequence of his head. Also, there was a, another fully animated sequence they had to cut where it's a uh, lock, it's a uh, shock lock and barrel getting like soda and popcorn from actual machines and taking their elevator down to the outside of their house. And they're watching Oogie Boogie torture Santa and they're just like eating and drinking popcorn, having fun watching Santa being tortured. And Jack comes and finds them, crawls down the cage and scares them and they like jump into the abyss or something. Um, I mean, it's like a nice scene and uh, the camera works well done. Yeah. But I, I guess it's just kind of unnecessary and would have detracted from the pacing because when Jack rushes to Oogie Boogie's house, this would have taken place in between Jack running to Oogie Boogie to save them. So it would right. really would have slowed it down. Plus, we probably don't need to watch little kids drinking soda and popcorn and watching Santa being tortured. That's a little meta, I guess. Right. But uh, just not completely necessary. Right. Okay, so I have a quick question for you. Uh, I know that I've seen it, but have you seen the movie The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Well, I've seen a still image from it, but unfortunately I have not seen it. Okay. I'm just curious because I noticed this on this time around because I had actually watched that movie recently. Um, there is a lot of... I guess maybe not just the, that movie in general, but I mentioned this earlier. German expressionism is a big thing with Halloween Town. Uh, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is a great example of German expressionism. If you ever get the chance to watch it, I would highly recommend it because it you really get to see where the where the original some of the original ideas of the design of Halloween Town, like the buildings and stuff, comes from. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, 1920s-ish. Um, it's a German film, of course, but you really do get the sense of this is kind of where a lot of the ideas, maybe just in Tim Burton in general for this movie kind of came from. You have those really warped style of buildings where they kind of look at more like a trapezoid and there are like leading on one side and all kinds of stuff, the diagonal lines and stuff like that. I would highly recommend it. Uh, it looks a lot, not a lot, but you can definitely see the influence of that. Movie that is funny. One. You brought that up because last night I was, I have a, uh, Van Helsing, the Steven Summers 2000 movie with Hugh Jackman. I got the production book and I was reading about the production of the movie and they drew a lot of inspiration from Dr. Caligari and um, the slanted houses of the Transylvanian village. And I was just thinking about, as we were talking about this podcast and recently watching the movie, I was like, wait a minute, these houses in Nightmare Before Christmas and uh, the Transylvania village they're like really similar how they're like all slanted and whatnot. And right. um, apparently it comes from Dr. Calig... How do you say it? Caligari? I've always said Caligari, but it I might no be say Caligari. Dr. Dr. Caligari. Yeah. So that's interesting to know. That's yeah. where they got it from. And it's still being influential today. 
Yeah, it's the movie for its time looks really, really interesting. It looks creepy. I mean, it kind of looks a lot. It is pretty spooky. I mean, for a movie that came out in the 1920s. Uh, from today, it's a bit different. But yeah, you definitely see that influence here. And to be fair, both movies look gorgeous in their own right. I do really like the end of this movie, how it's it snows in Halloween Town. And they kind of have, they mm-hmm. share their moment at the end. They're back on the pumpkin stalk. Kind of comes full circle because that's where Jack's lament was. And this is where Jack is pretty happy. And then he turns around and he kind of sees right. his happiness completed with Sally coming up there. And they embrace and kiss. I guess I was surprised they kissed. I didn't expect. Yeah, I want to know how that works in this world. That'd be kind of cold, I would feel, for, I guess, both of them. So I guess it really wouldn't matter. I'm thinking too far. I don't know. Yeah, you're thinking pretty far to it. (laughs) (laughs) But it is gorgeous to look at because you kind of get a very similar shot to what Jack was when he first entered this one place. But now you have both of them on the the hill instead of her watching from uh, behind a gravestone. Looks great, as usual. It's also a very famous scene uh, with them on the hill that's already kind of frozen over. This this area just looks so, so good. Yeah. I do like the... They did release this as the cover of the new Blu-ray with like a sing-along edition or something. I don't know. But yeah. the cover looks nice. I, 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 that was actually relatively cheap. But that Blu-ray was, it was like 10 bucks. Yeah. Something like that. I, I do like Maybe, the cover. The I, I actually like the cover better than my mm-hmm. original Blu-ray cover, which is just Jack with some black and white design behind him. Just his head. I have these... I love the special edition one. Mine just has the red border oh, around okay. it. I think it's relatively gotcha. the same thing, though. Just with the red border. And I think I've also got the DVD copies, like, and a couple of extra oh. special features, I think. Cool. I don't really yeah, know. Yeah, that's not what I have. But, yeah, I'm definitely satisfied with this ending. I'm satisfied with kind of the arc that everybody goes through and comes through. And Santa comes back to save the day in... I really like how he just kind of flies away. He just goes, of course I can save it. I'm Santa Claus. And then just kind of flies away, like grabs his nose and just like floats off. It's just it is, it's, really it's kind funny. of funny because we get to see a bit of a different side of Santa here because Santa is always a jovial figure. Whereas this, he's very cranky about right. everything. But I can't blame him because he is kidnapped and kind of psychologically tortured, kind of physically tortured also. But uh, yeah. It is just kind of funny because his character, yeah, like you said, always considered to be very jolly. In this one, he's kind of not, which is totally opposite of what he is supposed to be like. It makes sense, though, because he's out of nowhere captured <laughs> and then is in this place that is completely yeah, opposite of his but own. but it kind of shows that, hey, we're on good terms because Santa kind of brings Christmas to Halloween right. town, and uh, at least as far as the snow goes. And one other thing I'll mention before we give our final thoughts is... It is kind of funny to think Jack is doing all this good. He's giving them these wonderful presents. And in fact, it is completely terrorizing them. And it that is where it happens. The nightmare before Christmas is this whole movie kind of is cooking up to it. But then we get to see it come to fruition. Um, it's a nice scene. It's mm-hmm. kind of funny. Yeah. And my favorite is probably the giant snake yeah. eating the tree. And there's a kid like in the doorway just like just screaming his head off. I laugh every time at that scene. Yeah, so that, that was funny. We did crack up with that in the theater. Um, I think the whole, I, I just, I like all of them. I guess I hadn't thought too much, which was my favorite, but the kids are just so scared running up the stairs and of all shapes and sizes. Yep. It's, it's a funny scene. Right. They've also got the most, probably the most famous 
uh, example of this scene is when the parents come downstairs <laughs> yes. and the mom and dad are like, what's hand to give you for Christmas, honey? And he pulls out the, the head, the doll head, uh, or I guess it's just a regular head, a decapitated one. The parents yeah. freak out. That's probably one of the more famous scenes from this. Uh, from this, that was the final shot of the trailer. Was that scene? And if I was a parent yes. at that time, I'm going to say it. I probably wouldn't let my kid go see that. They would have to be a little older than I don't know what would be a good. Maybe like around eight or nine would probably be okay to see this movie. At least eight, maybe probably anything younger. I probably wouldn't let my kid see right. that movie. Right. I mean, I'd probably be on the same camp with you. Uh, this is this movie does kind of yeah, earn its PG no, rating. Well, should we talk a little bit about this possible sequel first, or just final thoughts and then sequel? Yeah, well, let's let's mention the sequel after. Okay, that's we do our final thoughts. Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for the Nightmare Before Christmas? Despite my few criticisms i would say despite my few criticisms that i do feel are rather warranted this movie is a complete joy to watch and back when i was a bit but a wee lad and i didn't really enjoy this movie so much i didn't think that i would come to ever watch this movie ever ever again mind you uh and of course i did and now here i am talking about it and gushing and of course we're gushing about it yeah i absolutely love this movie and i that's why i watched it again uh, last night before this recording was just because I I not really take notes. I just wanted to watch it again because it is just a complete joy. I hadn't watched it for a while, at least a year and a half uh, since I got the Blu-ray, I guess. So it's such a joy to watch. This movie is so, it's so Tim Burton, but it's so well done in a way that's so unique, even to Tim Burton himself, I would even say. You can tell that his influence is everywhere in this movie. And it is still very impressive to know that he didn't exactly have a physical hand on everything that you see on the screen that was more Finney Selleck in his and his compatriots. Really, really, really fun ride, I would have to say. Uh, this is a cult movie, and perhaps its popularity is only due to the fact that it is so beloved by these these people who have come to grow and love this movie. Maybe in the future it will still be that way, but it was something that I would say is not may it may resonate with some people just because of the legacy that it has but i think that perhaps this more old style of claymation is going to push some people away not me i absolutely love this older style not as perfect kind of animation despite it being something that looks like it's made by hand i absolutely love that it looks like a lot of care went into this movie and you can really feel that a lot of creativity a lot of care is bursting with all this kind of stuff and something that maybe even only tim burton can do at least with this kind of style that being said there are also criticisms but i've kind of mentioned all those before in this in this uh in this podcast uh still a fantastic movie i absolutely adore it so much i love the soundtrack it, despite a couple of songs i'm not so much so big of a fan of that being said, it's a high recommend. Of course it is. It's a 9 out of 10 for me. The Nightmare Before Christmas is a film I hold dear to my heart. It inspired my imagination as a child, which contributed to me becoming a storyteller. And honestly, this was one of the movies that I wanted made me want to be a uh, claymation creator. I wanted to make claymation movies. As a kid and uh, as an adult, the experience grows all the more rich as I can appreciate it in ways I couldn't as a child. Featuring one of the most memorable sequences and my favorite of all time, along with incredible songs and a great immensely inventive story, 
The Nightmare Before Christmas is my favorite stop-motion film of all time, and just one of my favorites of all time. It receives 10 stars out of 10 with my highest recommendation. So I hear that there are some sequels that were planned at one point or talked about for this movie. I mean, it makes sense. They made a crap ton of money in the box office compared to its budget. Yeah, this is kind of like uh, kind of giving me Casablanca flashbacks. Yeah, where something is recorded. Yeah, something is so pure and wonderful and (laughs) it's so successful. And they're like, let's make more money. Let's make a sequel. And sometimes they do like with uh, John Carpenter's Halloween and they screw everything up. And then sometimes they'll make an entire universe out of it. Makes everything even better sometimes but you know what thankfully that didn't happen but in 2001 disney was like hey what if we make a sequel but not with stop motion and instead use computer animation you know how disgusting that would have looked in 2001 (laughs) oh yeah well i mean if they had pixar it wouldn't be that bad but not with this movie. Stop, mo- stop motion is why this movie looks and is as is it. it is so influential. I don't think it would have worked with CGI. Yeah, I mean, A Bug's Life and Toy Story were groundbreaking and they did look great. But right. I just think bringing this type of design, character design and whatnot, because the dimensions and shapes and everything are just so different, I can't see it working, especially once, especially translating it into a different medium. I just... Yeah. I don't know, I think maybe nowadays, because of how they can manipulate um, animation, computer animation to look so different, like we see with the Leica movies, the Charlie Brown movie had really great animation, Um, and then you get, you know, like your Despicable Me's and stuff. Those are all computer animated, but they all look different. (sighs) This movie just wouldn't have looked good, and you know, thank goodness it didn't happen. Yeah, I'm kind of glad it didn't go through i would say that maybe the best example of what it possibly could have been at the time this wouldn't have probably would have happened would probably be if they did something along the lines of like the lego movie where it is all cg but yeah, they kind of animated to look more like it was stop motion i could see where that could work but even me i'm just like yeah just keep it animated keep it clay animated i think that just the style of that works so much better uh with this kind of a style with this kind of a movie than yeah than cgi cgi would have well thankfully tim burton talked it out of it and he right. tim burton said i was always very protective of nightmare not to do sequels or things of that kind makes he's sense. like you know i don't want it to be jack visits thanksgiving world or other <laughs> things like that yeah Plus, I'm just, I don't even see how there could be a sequel to this movie. Although, yeah, sure, I would like to see Thanksgiving World and Easter World, Leprechaun World, whatever. I'm just really, I don't think we could have Jack be the main character because his character arc is complete. How would that really, that would really undermine this movie because Jack has learned, he's learned his lesson and then to say, oh no, he needs to go back and want to become a pilgrim or something. In Thanksgiving yeah. world. What? It would be in, it would be interesting to see where what kind of arc they would take with Jack Skellington next after what happened with Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. I don't know what it would have been. I don't know, but I do know in 2004 there was a video game called The Nightmare Before Christmas, Oogie's Revenge. That doesn't sound good to me. 
Um, it apparently is a sequel to the film. Capcom's crew developed it, and they did come to Burton for advice and the film's art director, Dean Taylor. And apparently in 2009, Henry Selleck said he would do a film sequel if he and Burton could create a good story for it. Yeah, you hear that a lot. Yeah. Uh, the directors won't come back unless they have an, a good idea for what it could be. I think that happened with uh, the new Jason Bourne movie. Uh, that's one of the more recent examples I can think of. Yeah, and it's always tied to somebody else. Like Matt Damon was like, I won't come back unless Paul Greengrass is directing. Right. Daniel Craig was like, I won't do the next James Bond unless, what is, what's his name, David Mendez or something is directing the next movie. It, right. Even uh, Ryan Gosling said, oh yeah, I'll do Batman as long as Damien Chazelle directs it. That would be interesting, actually. I wonder how he would handle that. Oh, oh, please let it come true. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting to see, though. To see Damien Chazelle take on a superhero movie. I wanted that would be. Hmm. We'll be curious to see what that would be like. I yeah, it would be. We are. We've got Matt Reeves doing the new Batman trilogy, which I have complete confidence in him after Planet of the Apes. But that's a whole other subject, which we may talk, may or may not talk about in the future. We'll see. But listeners, thank you so much for joining us on our kind of Thanksgiving special here um, with The Nightmare Before Christmas. We hope you had a fun Halloween with your favorite candy we, and you enjoyed listening to our Halloween special. Make sure to look up uh, for our coming Christmas special of A Miracle on 34th Street, a classic. I'm so excited to review it. I am too. I haven't seen this yet. Everyone talks about it. Guess I'll have to watch it. It's a classic. Finally. It's it's so much fun. Yep. That's what I've heard. I, I'm really excited to talk about it, actually. I haven't seen it yet. And, of course, everyone talks about this. Yes. Uh, listeners, if you're hankering for our Christmas episode already, then go ahead and look in the archives. We did review It's a Wonderful Life, a wonderful film. That was uh, last year's Christmas special, so go ahead and check that out. And uh, go ahead and click subscribe, click like, share it with your friends, do all those wonderful things. You're 21st century kids. You know what to do. Uh, leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. That will really help us with the rankings. That will help us get noticed by other people so we can share uh, the love of just talking about films. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. If you look in the description below, we made it really easy for you to follow us on social media or to sign up with email. And then, of course, if you want to help Silver Screen guide out a little bit, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider giving a small donation. And you'll get, just for the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee, you'll you'll get our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, bonus reviews, bonus podcasts, Q&As where you can ask us anything, film commentaries that we do ourselves. So you'll get a lot of extra exclusive bonus content that other people won't get. And that money does not go straight into our pockets. That money goes into ensuring we have enough storage, enough bandwidth to host the podcast, to making improvements on the website, just giving you an all-around better experience. So so that money really isn't for us. That is so you can have a better experience and enjoy these episodes and enjoy them with others. So please consider just a small donation. And it could be a one-time thing. It doesn't have to be a recurring thing. 
But we want to say thank you again. We've got two uh, great anime reviews coming up before we finish off the Bogart series. I'm very excited to talk about... I'm excited to see where this conversation goes because we've talked about anime before, uh, but these are two that... I I mentioned this in previous podcasts. These are two that have had a a bit of a cultural impact, I would say. More More so Akira than your name does, of course. But... We'll talk about those next week. Well, Akira first, and then your name the week after that. Yeah, I've already got your name sitting right here next to me, ready to fire up and watch. I don't know a thing about it, except I've heard a lot of good things about it. I've never seen any footage from it. I've seen Akira at least twice. Uh, I'll save my thoughts for that. I nearly spoiled my thoughts for that one, but I won't do yep, it. I, I, I have seen both at least once. Oh. And... Yeah, I think just once on each. I have come so close to buying the Akira Blu-ray so many times and then haven't. So I guess now I have to buy it because I know we're going to review it and I know I'm going to want to, I know I'm going to, I know I'm going to hate myself if I don't get it eventually. (laughs) Yeah, Akira was a birthday present or no, I'm sorry, a Christmas present not that long ago. Alan and I watched it. I showed it to him for the first time. Uh, We've got a story to tell about Akira and you've, that's the only time you've seen it. Whoa, I thought, yes, I thought you so had watched far. it after that. So I'm definitely going to be yeah. interested to see how your thoughts change. I'm sure they've drastically changed since the first time you watched it. Right. I know that uh, – I I don't know why I haven't watched it again. I've actually been meaning to. I think it was it was on Amazon Prime at one point, and I said, I need to watch this before it goes away, and then it went away. Nah. So, yeah. <laughs> I guess it's more of just a, a platform that I haven't been able to watch it on yet. That's the reason why I haven't been able to see it again, although I'd love to watch it again. Well, listeners, make sure to look forward to that. If you have no idea what we're talking about, you've never heard of Akira or your name, now's a good time to go ahead and rent those movies and give them a watch. Um, I know they're anime and not everybody probably likes anime, but these ones are pretty special. They're kind of in a different class with uh, the animation style and storytelling, just as we thought Ghost in the Shell was. Um, it's one of those really special um, animated films. So thank you so much again, listeners, for joining us on our pseudo Thanksgiving special of The Nightmare Before Christmas. We look forward to bringing you some really great reviews coming up very soon, and we'll catch you next time.